Hello, everybody, and welcome to another one in our series of financial well-being podcasts. Tomo, you're probably the most important person here today. Tell us all about yourself. Thank you, David. Thank you. That's put a real smile on my face. (coughs) (laughs) So, uh, Director and Chartered Financial Planner at Ovation Finance and Director at the Initiative of Financial Wellbeing and still in lockdown, still with a toddler, still working our way through the new world. But yeah, that's me. How exciting for you. Chris, tell us about yourself. Chris Budd, uh, from uh, reporting from my cabin in the garden, where it feels like I've been for about 15 years. <laughs> I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book. Uh, I founded and still chairman of Ovation Finance. And I also run a business consultancy helping companies to do what I did with Ovation, which is to set it to an employee ownership trust. So succession planning and that kind of stuff. And my name's David Lloyd, and I kind of waffle on and ask all the stupid questions to which these two highly intelligent people are able to give good answers. So, Chris, any news for us today? Have you got anything you want to share with us about your life, either of you, actually? I think you're being a bit disingenuous by yourself, David, actually. Your insights and wisdom are what make this podcast so fascinating, and your experiences with heavy drugs, that kind of stuff, I think is what makes it all so interesting. <laughs> yes, that's for anybody that listened to the previous podcast, 66, where I fessed up to LSD usage 46 years ago. I've never probably actually said that. At the time, it was extremely illegal. Uh, so I hope the Statue of Limitations has expired <laughs> on that one now. Can you imagine somebody somebody downloading this podcast for the first time and, <laughs> and it's just discovered <laughs> you were talking about what in the last episode? <laughs> there was a link, it's all relevant. Go in and check it out. Excellent. All right, then let's move swiftly on. Uh, Chris, what 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 have you got for us today? Today we have an interview with a really fascinating guy, Dr. Ilya Gogoris. He wrote the book Seven Paths to Happiness, a best-selling book. I'm not going to give anything away from the interview, but I personally found it to be deeply affecting, actually. It's got me thinking a great deal, and I found it quite an emotional discussion. So I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. But before we do that, let's go to what is now becoming a fast-established and very popular regular feature here on the Financial Wellbeing Podcast, one of Beige's behavioural biases. Chris, tell us more. So today, David, Neil's going to tell us all about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Linked to overconfidence, there is another bias which is not only fascinating, but can actually be quite influential in the way people navigate the world around them. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias, and in essence it means that people will believe they are smarter and more able than they actually are. Essentially, people who have a low ability in something, or have no competence, don't possess the skills needed to recognise their own incompetence. And this combination, a lack of self-awareness and the inability to recognise their incompetence, leads people to overestimate their ability. It can be summed up, I guess, in that famous phrase, a little information is a bad thing. Now, let me explain quickly how this works. And you'll see that it is notoriously difficult for humans to avoid this kind of overconfident driven bias. So let's say you are new to investing and you decide that you want to invest in a stocks and shares based investment. You don't know anything about it, so you decide to do your research. 
you go online, read a few articles, watch a few YouTube videos maybe, speak to a few friends. But all the time, you are slowly, slowly building up an embryonic knowledge based on investing in stocks and shares. The problem comes when you have a little bit of acquired knowledge. We typically tend to overinflate our ability at that point, especially when we are trying to apply that knowledge. So we get to a place quite quick where we think we are better at something than we actually are. And only when you go on a journey and you learn and you learn and you learn and you become an expert in a subject, do you recognize or more to the point, you have the skills to recognize the stuff that you know and the stuff that you don't know. And this leads to a heightened state of self-awareness that is truly beneficial when we are making important decisions. So I really find the Dunning-Kruger effect fascinating. Neil describes it brilliantly there, but I've actually um, experienced this firsthand over the last couple of years. Let me just explain. So uh, having sold a majority of Ovation into an employee ownership trust, which is a very new concept, I have written a book about it called The Eternal Business, and I go out and advise and do consultancy with business owners. And I've spoken literally to hundreds and hundreds of business owners, four or 500 business owners about this, whether it's just a sentence at a conference or they phone me up for a chat. I'm always happy to have a chat with people. And what I've discovered is so many of these people have said, thanks very much, Chris. I'll now go ahead and do all the two years worth of cultural changes needed in my business on my own because I read your book. And I try and say to them, well, it's actually an awful lot deeper than that. But the Dunning-Kruger effect is written large in business owners who, yeah, who think that they've got enough information based upon just a very scant bit of knowledge. And yet it's such a deep and fascinating subject. So I've had this frustratingly over the last couple of years, big time myself. Interesting. Very interesting. Right, let's come on then to the next in our regular features, tight ass Tomo. Now, I've actually got a tip this week about how you can save a bit of money. Now, listen, this is not an original one. And indeed, I'm pretty sure that we've touched upon it in previous podcasts. But it's worth reiterating it because I've just had a personal experience of it this week. And that is just check your direct debits. I had a letter from EE, who I had my phone with uh, recently, that said, oh, the contract on your tablet has run out. And it was and I remembered, well, I didn't remember that I'd got a tablet because I know I've got one, but I'd forgotten that actually when I got it two years ago, uh, I took out um, like a phone contract on it so that I could be connected when I wasn't connected to Wi-Fi. Do you know what? I reckon I've used the phone on that probably two or three times in the two years that I've had it. So they said, well, look, you know, you can carry on or you don't need to do anything. It'll just carry on. It's £16.70 a month. And I thought, well, actually, do I still need to be doing that? No, I don't. So I rang them up. Interesting, you always have to ring them up, don't you? You can never just go online and cancel stuff. You've always got to speak to somebody so they can try and talk you out of it or sell you something else. However, I did speak to, actually, to be fair, a very friendly person who cancelled it for me, no problem. And therefore, I saved myself £16.70 a month just by keeping an eye on my outgoings. Man, I love that. Love that. Yeah. I thought you'd appreciate that, Tom. I do. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of uh, time to do a bit of life admin and hey, presto. And you know what the thing was? I saw the letter. I'd had the letter for about a week and I thought, well, I must, I must do something with that. I must do something with that. Now, I know me well. And in the past, I would have thought I must do something with that. I never actually done it. So the difference is have an idea and then act on it. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. What's yours then, Tomo? 
Right. What have I got for you today? So I'm not sure you, I'm not sure you two are going to be too happy with this because I know your views on the throwaway fashion industry. It's not particularly sustainable, is it? But you know what? People need to wear clothes. And for some people, they're going through some real hard times with, with lockdown, with incomes potential have dropped if you're furloughed or being made redundant. Um, we don't quite know what the world may look like. You know, I remain optimistic. But I came across a site called everything5pounds.com. Now, it, it reads as everything's5pounds.com, very clever. Instead of the S at the end, they used a five. Well, I've done them. Um, but, but on there, <laughs> on there is literally everything is five pounds. So you can buy yourself some, you know, a jumper, T-shirts, five pounds. I'll have a car. Of car, or it's clothing, sorry. <laughs> I should have stopped. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think a really good one, if people are trying to tighten the belt and need some, need some clothes, you know, go and have a look. Five, five quid for an item of clothing. Um, I don't I've know where it's been made or what the ethics behind it are. So, you know, do that, do that due diligence yourself, but go and check it out. I've got some homework for you then, Tomo. Um, okay. Cause a really, really good money saving tip obviously is charity shops. Yeah. Uh, can we do charity shop buying online? Ooh, there's a bit of homework for me. Right. Charity shop buying online. You did have me worried a little bit there, Tomo, actually, because David and I, David, I'm going to use the sobriquet. David and I are authors. You've just finished your novel. So I think we can call you, you know, an author. And I thought you were going to say a really good tip is buy secondhand books. (laughs) I I don't agree with that at all. That's a terrible, terrible idea. (laughs) No, no, I tell you what, if you want a really good tip and you want to spend some money on something that's going to give you a great deal back is when David launches his book, buy that, and Chris, you've got about 400 available. So buy one of those. <laughs> yeah, I've got some in the garage you're going to have for cheap. <laughs> exactly. Hey, look, in particular, the financial well-being book, you can pick up directly at Penny Braun. Actually, um, you can't at the minute because they're shut. But oh, yeah. Nice idea. So let's leave that one there. All right. Okay. However, do get the financial well-being book, though, because obviously that is the foundation on which these podcasts are built. Well, you never know. Yeah. People might be listening to this when lockdown is over. So check it out. Otherwise, hold off because we want as much of the proceeds to go to that wonderful charity as possible. Excellent. Thank you for that, Tomo. Chris, uh, why don't you introduce your interview for today? Thanks, David. So we have Dr. Ilya Gugoris. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that okay. He is the fascinating uh, psychologist, an expert in the field of positive psychology. He's the president of the Happiness Centre. And he's also author of a number one best-selling book, Seven Paths to Lasting Happiness. And this starts off with his own personal story, which I think you will all agree would be absolutely fascinating and really sets the brain going uh, about your own life. So let's have a little listen to my chat with Dr. Ilya Gogoris. Ilya, thank you so much for joining on our podcast. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Uh, where are we speaking to you from today? From uh, Colorado. Colorado, okay. I don't know my America very well, I'm afraid, but uh, what's, what's Colorado home to? Colorado is more of a, uh, the Rocky Mountains. If you've heard of the majestic <laughs> okay. Rocky Mountains of Colorado, we're uh, the western part of the United States. We border Utah, I guess, and uh, to the west, and Wyoming, uh, the wilderness. Well, if it's you've got the Rockies, west. it must yes. be a very, very beautiful area, I'm sure. It is beautiful, yes. 
<laughs> so look, um, perhaps you could just explain to us how you came into this idea of happiness and how you became a happiness expert. Well, you know, <laughs> that's actually a, a very funny and interesting story. Uh, you know, my background, my professional background, I have a PhD in psychology. I had a clinical practice for many, many years, and then I transitioned over to the corporate side and uh, do executive coaching and leadership training and development. But the happiness expertise began, and this is a true story, on the very first day I was born. So I, I was born a long time ago in Athens, Greece. And as the story was told uh, growing up, you know, my dad, kind of a tough Greek guy, you know, shows up at the hospital and, and, and uh, asks the nurse, you know, where's my son? And I guess I was behind this little window, me and four other little babies were all wrapped up in the same generic white blankets back in the day. And at, I guess at that moment, I had a big smile on my face. So the nurse turns to my dad and says, your son, he's the happy one. <laughs> and I was branded the day I was born. So that story was told to me growing up, you know, well, you came out of the womb happy. You've always been a happy kid. And people that have known me for decades, my friends and family, you know, for the most part, in spite of life's tragic events from time to time or the ups and downs that I tend to see life as the glass half full or a half, maybe even the glass overwhelming. Uh, and <laughs> fast forward 25 years, now I'm in graduate school and the professor's talking to us about the debate between nature versus nurture. Just in what I was words, going to ask you. Yes. Yeah, no, no, but this is the beauty of it. And basically, is it a genetic predisposition that makes us who we are, or is it our environment and its impact on us? And of course, the reality is that, it, that, that they both contribute. But I had this terrible thought <laughs> in the middle of that class. It, it was as if it was yesterday. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What if my dad gets stuck in traffic, shows up like 15 minutes late, come up to the same little window, asks the same nurse the same question, which one's my son? And at that very moment, I have this you know, horrible gas pains, and I'm screaming my head off, and my face is all red. And the nurse turns to my dad and says, your son, he's the cranky one. And <laughs> you can be the, the cranky expert. <laughs> exactly. And, and therefore, you're, you're like all that personal branding. You know, I'm branded from the get-go. Well, you came out of the womb, cranky. You were a miserable little beep, you know. <laughs> so when I share this story, not just in this country, but I also, you know, I spoke in London last year and in Paris and Rome and Athens. When I share this story about personal branding, I, I say this, that we've all been branded to some degree. And some brands are positive, like the being the happiness you know, brand is a, a brand that I've actually embraced in my lifetime. There are other great brands, like the smart one, you know, obviously the creative one, the intelligent one, the artistic one, the princess. You know, there are a whole bunch of other brands that are positive. And if you have been branded that way, count your blessings. My experience, however, in working with people is this, that a lot of people, certainly my clients that I've worked with, and many people that I've talked to actually throughout the country and the world, have had negative brands. And I will tell you the worst three, or the most common, I should say. The ugly one, the fat one, and the stupid one. You would be amazed how many people have grown up with those brands. And the interesting thing is that, that those those terms are given to us by our peers in order to make it to put us down and be lower than them, haven't they? Yes, and and the unfortunate thing, Chris, is that sometimes that happens early on in our life. Sometimes it happens yeah. even in our own homes. So a few years ago, I'm giving this talk to a women's conference, 
And I challenged the audience, basically. I said, look, if you don't like your brand, this is an empowerment. You know, this is the time in your life. If you don't like your, your negative brand, choose a different brand that represents who you want to be and who you want to become. So out of the corner of my eye, there's this older lady in her 70s, gray hair, stands up and starts waving her arms, you know, at me. So I kind of interrupted my flow and my talk. But obviously, she wanted to say something. And I said, yes, ma'am, you, you know. And she goes, you know what, after listening to you, I grew up for 70 years, I've had the brand, and I haven't had one. I had all three of them. I was called stupid, fat, and ugly my entire life. And you could hear a pin drop in the audience, Chris. I mean, it was like, we, it, was, it was stunning, actually, that she acknowledged that. And I thought quite vulnerable, honestly, in front of an audience of 500 people. I don't know if I would have shared something so personal in front of yeah. you know, a whole bunch of people. Anyway, so I, I said, you know, it caught me off guard a little bit. I'm like... She goes, but after listening to you, I want to change my brand. And I'm like, okay, well, what would you like your new brand to be? And her name was Leah, by the way. She goes, well, from now on, I want to be known as Princess Leah. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm up in the, you know, I'm up in the podium and I bowed. I said, yes, your majesty. (laughs) That must have got a great great laugh in the audience. Love it. No, the the audience laughed. It became, you know, from a very serious moment to a very lighthearted moment. But why do I share this story with you and with your audience? The reason is this. If a woman in her 70s, after seven decades, has makes a decision to change her brand from this negative that has haunted her basically for seven decades and change it, then that means any one of us can change our brand if we don't like it. And I applaud her. I think it was a remarkable thing to do it in public in front of 500 other people. Mm. And I use her as an example because I think that's remarkable. Can I, um, I don't wish to try and get some free consultation with you but let's share something that that you've awoken in me in in saying this that I've been thinking about my son so my father used to make a joke and it was a joke and he only meant it in jest but it's one of those things that you say within the family that he always used to say to me you've got to work hard at school because you've got to pay for my nursing fees you've got to pay for my care home fees Mm -hmm. and I believed him and uh, I thought he was serious. You know, I, th- I thought he actually meant it. Um, and so when I started work, and I only realized this years later, I, I went to university. I did a degree that I hated, economics, uh, when really I wanted to be a writer. And I, my whole career is full of doing things. And I realized in a way, and I, I have realized this for a while because I've, I've, I'm careful not to say the same thing to my son, but I have realized for a while that my branding was the guy that had to pay for my dad's care home fees. Um, yeah, you were the responsible one, actually. I mean, it, it, I, I don't. I mean, that's not necessarily a negative brand because being responsible has a certain positive connotation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think but it's it also drove me to a do burden things. upon you. By yes, your dad. It, exactly. Burdens are very. Yes, it drove me to do things that I may not have chosen for myself. Um, exactly. And he didn't mean it to be selfish. He would, you know, no way did he mean it like that. It really was only a joke, but it did affect me, and it did drive and and, and in many ways a few off the hand comments like that. And somebody else did set a course for my life. Absolutely. So I think that's why it's very important for us, especially in our families, in our homes and with our children, to be very mindful of what comes out of our mouths and what Mm. we say. Even if we do it in jest, you don't know what lifelong or long-term impact those words could have, even though we don't really mean it in a negative light. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about a lot, and I'm pretty sure you'll be be more than familiar with this, is is the self-limiting beliefs. Yes. that we have. And I assume that a lot of these come from that kind of branding. Well, absolutely. You know, I wrote a book called Seven Paths to Lasting Happiness. It became a number one bestseller here in the United States. 
And the first path, of course, is love yourself. And the first part of that is the personal brand. Because the way we view ourselves, if it has a if if the glasses we wear are negative and, and we have self-defeating thoughts, typically those lead to self-destructive behaviors, which basically only re- reinforce the fact that we're losers in essence. You know, so we have to change the way we view ourselves and change the way that we think about ourselves. So personal brand is one thing. There are a couple of other things that have a direct impact on whether we love ourselves or not. One of them has to do with comparisons. And we're all guilty. We all make comparisons. All of us do it. We probably do it on a daily basis. And really, if you think about it, if we, when we make comparisons to somebody else, there are only two possible outcomes. Either I'm better than you, Chris, or you're better than me. And if I go around thinking I'm always better than other people, that's a very arrogant and prideful statement. And nobody wants to be around people like that. And really, if you think about arrogant people on the outside, they're insecure little boys on the inside. That's why they're arrogant and why they put other people down. If you feel secure within yourself, you never have to put anybody else down. So that's one side of the comparison that doesn't work. However, the majority of people, you know, and, I, and I've had a lot of, you know, my clients have been women, and, and those are my kind of informal statistics. When comparisons are made, it's always like I don't measure up, basically, compared to somebody else. Because oftentimes we compare our own human frailties and, you know, weaknesses and, you know, just, you know, we're not perfect human beings to other people's perceived strengths. So when we don't feel like we measure up with somebody else, then that makes us depressed, actually. It erodes our self-worth and our self-esteem. There's only one way to get away from this comparison conundrum, and that is to, the only comparison that truly counts is the one within ourselves. And, And in practicality, how does that work? So let's take an easy example, our physical health. And, and I take people through, I have a program, you know, a work-life happiness program that I take people through. And I specifically ask, now go back and compare yourself physically, your physical health, like 10 years ago, five years ago, last year, now. And let's say that 10 years ago, I was in terrible shape. And five years ago, I started doing better. And last year, I hired a nutritionist, I'm eating healthier, and I'm exercising five days a week, and I'm in the best shape of my life. That's not an arrogant statement to say I'm doing better now than I used to do. That's a factual statement. I'm actually factually in better shape than I was before. So that's the one side of the comparison. But let's reverse that example. Let's say that 10 years I was in tipped-up shape, and then five years ago, you know, started having family, have kids, don't have time to exercise, and now I just eat fast food and I'm so stressed out, and my physical health has deteriorated. I'm not as in good shape as I used to be. The question then is, this is not meant to beat myself up. Really, it's more about to inspire me to move to action. In other words, remember, Chris, how good you felt 10 years ago when you were in the best shape of your life? What are you willing to do about it now to get back to that place? That's all. You're not comparing yourself to anybody else other than against your best self. And if we could do that, then we avoid you know, feeling down. We avoid feeling depressed. Or on the plus side, we don't feel arrogant. We're just saying, yeah, I'm on a good path. Pat yourself on the back from time to time and say, keep doing it. So comparisons are deadly, and mm-hmm. we all do them. And, and presumably, uh, when, when we compare ourselves with other people, I presume we only ever compare ourselves against the best of other people. Exactly. But there, you know, there are some people that compare themselves and put themselves, oh, I got more money, I got the faster car, the bigger house. This, I mean, there's also the comparison on the, you know, the prideful, arrogant side. But typically for most people, it's the other comparison where I don't quite measure up. You know, we look at other people, it's like, 
and we always feel like they have a better life. And social media has exacerbated this, of course, mm-hmm. you know. Everything on Instagram or Facebook or whatever is like people living these perfect lives, quote unquote. And then you look at your own life and you and you commiserate it like, oh, my life sucks, basically. So, so uh, there is a uh, a lot in this about about money, isn't there? About how we view money, and about how um, we we compare ourselves with others financially, thinking that uh, we've got to have a certain amount. Now, I was just doing a talk for somebody else, and um, there was a survey where um, I think it was in Canada, where they offered a group of people um, a choice between a hundred thousand dollars a year salary, where everybody else was earning two hundred thousand dollars a year. Or a fifty thousand dollars a year salary, where everybody else was earning twenty thousand dollars. And they chose the fifty. And they chose the fifty. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so we're actually doing ourselves down by making those comparisons, aren't we? We're not getting the best for ourselves by making our comparisons. Indeed, we are. And there have been studies that have been validated repeatedly. So it's not like a one-off study that, have, at least in the United States, anyway, that if you make seventy thousand dollars a year, that is the optimum in terms of of your happiness. In other words. If you make more than that, if you make a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, that doesn't increase your happiness anymore. So, for whatever reason, you know, seventy thousand basically says I have all my needs met, and maybe I have a little bit extra to, you know, take care of some of my wants. Mm. There's a chap, isn't there, who who put all of his employees on seventy thousand dollars a year? I was reading about him recently. Exactly, and there was an article that came out actually just recently that talked about what impact that has had on his employees and how mm. happy they truly are. So he's a he was a visionary CEO, honestly. Mm, mm. What chance do you think there might be of, uh, <laughs> of that catching on? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I hope that other people like emulate what he has to do. I, I don't know much about the kind of company that he has or you know how he was able to do that. I haven't read the, the specifics, but it is true that he has had a very positive impact on all his employees. Mm. He's beloved as a CEO. I'm just I'm just thinking that you know seventy thousand dollars a year. Uh, I mean, I, I was going to say it's not that much. Of course, it is. If you don't have it, it, of course, it's a lot. But when you're thinking of the seriously wealthy people that there are in the world, and you know some of the um, Silicon Valley billionaires, right? How can we get to those people? I'm I'm just musing here. But how can we get to those people and make them realize, hey, this isn't making you any happier. All this money. Why, why do you keep it? I mean, you go really, and do some work with them. <laughs> yeah, if you think about it, Chris, really, money equals freedom. I mean, that's how I see it. Mm. You know, do I like nice things? Of course, I do. Do I like to have a nice house, a nice car? Of course, and go on vacation? Of course. But that doesn't necessarily make me happier. Uh, what makes me happy is the relationships that I have with people around me. You know, living life with a purpose, which is one of the seven past lasting happiness. I, you know, my purpose in life is to leave this world a better place than I found it and to make a difference in other people's lives. Yes, the money is good, but really it's making a difference. This is what drives me. That's what I'm passionate about. Um, the other thing about happy people are people who are of service to others, who, who, you know, who perform acts of kindness, if you will, to others. That it's been proven that makes people happier. Mm. So the billionaires of the world, if they're in the process of distributing some of their wealth and, and contributing, I should say, to causes that they, they believe in, I'm sure that brings them a certain level yeah. of satisfaction. Yeah. If they're yeah. all about, you know, making the next billion dollars or whatever, I don't think that's, you know, that necessarily uh, makes them any happier. I, I know it doesn't. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a very interesting one. I just like to pick up on, if I may. The, yeah, uh, one of your seven steps being about purpose. It's something that we've talked a lot on, on about um, on the, on a podcast about uh, financial planning should be about helping you to achieve purpose rather than goals, that kind of stuff. But uh-huh. one of the things I'm very aware of is it's all very easy to say that, but it's actually not very easy to find purpose. Um, how would you suggest people go about finding their purpose? You know what I ask them? I, I have a process that I take people to call the best year yet. So I help them to create their best year of their life. So for 2020, for example, and, and, and that also happens for companies, not just for individuals. It can happen for a team. It can happen for a, uh, for a division uh, or for the entire company. And But let's do it on an individual basis because it's easier to explain this. If you were to go back and think about times in your life, what are you most passionate about? When you used to daydream, and I say this, if you had unlimited money and unlimited time and a magic wand, what would you want to be doing? I, and I know that sounds kind of like a fight. It's a funny exercise because people kind of, and I'm like, no limitations, just go crazy. What would you like you know, to, to be doing in your life? But basically, you would do it if you, even if you're not getting paid. I mean, for me, you know, I've done pro bono work where I help people in, in times of need because I do this because I love it. I love helping people. That, that's my passion. That's what I'm passionate about in whatever form that comes, whether it's writing books or lecturing or one-on-one or in group settings or in, in corporate uh, you know, retreats or whatever. But the theme is the same. I love seeing teams come together. I, I, I love seeing people you know, transform their lives for the better. That's a huge reward. And I've, I've been fortunate enough, honestly, because I've known that since I was pretty young in my life, long before I knew psychology or anything like that. I, it's something that I've always been driven towards. So find something that you would say, man, I would do this even if I didn't get paid because I love it so much. It, it fulfills me, basically. Could you link that with the personal brand idea? You know, if you're going to change yourself from being um, ugly, fat, and stupid to be, I'm the one that helps other people. Sure. I mean, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, the, I, I, I think that actually makes sense, right? If your personal brand and your purpose are aligned, then yeah. you would be happier, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, gratitude is a word I've seen that you use often in your articles and blogs and your books. Uh, how can gratitude help increase our well-being? <laughs> that's a great question. Number one, so that's path number two. After love yourself, gratitude is number two. And we've always heard the, the phrase having an attitude of gratitude. So there's no way we can be grateful and be down or depressed at the same time. Those two things cannot coexist. When I live in gratitude, my life, my heart is full. Now, it's easy to be grateful when things are going well. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you I'm the most grateful guy when everything is working out. Well, that's easy. The tough part is how can we be grateful? And and I say that we're all graduates from the same university in this world. We're all graduates from the university of adversity because we all face adversity in life. That's a given. As a matter of fact, the older we get, the more adversity we face in, in our lifetime, meaning that we're going to have relationships that are not going to work out, you know, perhaps divorce, uh, health issues, financial issues, unemployment, underemployment, you know, strike financial stress. Uh, all these things happen to most of us, potentially cancer or heart disease or diabetes or, you know, we're going to lose loved ones, our, initially our grandparents and then our parents and then be you know, God forbid our spouse or a child or a cousin or an aunt and uncle, that's part of human life, right? 
these things are going to happen. So we're all part of this university of adversity. The key, of course, is how can we be grateful in the midst of that? And that's not easy, by the way. I, uh, I've just started yoga, and um, which is a bit late at 53, but there we go. <laughs> Never too late to try these things. And one of the things that uh, has really struck me is this very, very simple line that our yoga instructor says, which is, just be grateful or well done for making it to the mat tonight. Yes. And it's such a simple line, but it's really got under my skin. It's just a way of saying, you've made the effort to take an hour for yourself. Well done. And I, and I walk away thinking about that line every single time. A little bit of gratitude that I've got that spare hour in my day that I can just sit on the mat and do a bit of yoga. Whether you do yoga or you do mindful meditation, or I mean, I ask people to create a, a gratitude journal and I say, look, write three things, just bullet points, nothing long, every morning when you wake up, what you're grateful for. If you do that for two or three weeks, it'll become a habit, it'll become second nature. And I promise you, when you have down days, you can open up your gratitude journal and start reading all the mm -hmm. things that you're grateful for. And that's the quickest way to go from being down to being up again. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great tip. Uh, we had... um. We had a chap on the podcast, a guy called Nick Elston, who's an anxiety um, expert. Uh, I just put these two things together, if you'll forgive me for a moment, because he gave a, a tip when he was suffering from anxiety, where he, one Monday morning, wrote down a list of everything that he was worrying about, kind of the opposite. Right. And he wrote down 127 things that he was worrying Holy about. Holy cow. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> and uh, what was so fascinating was he said a week later – he went back over that list and have a guess how many of those things had actually happened. Not, not that many, I bet. Not a single one of them. So okay. he was carrying 127 things around that he was worrying about, none of which had happened. Now, if that's a great first step. Maybe a second step is then your gratitude journal. Those two things together, I wonder, they could be quite powerful, couldn't they? You know, your friend that made that list, Mark Twain, who is the, you know, the famous, uh, you know, yeah. American uh, satirist and, and author and so on had this thing, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it a little bit, but basically he said, I have suffered a, a great many things in my life. Most of them never happened. <laughs> 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 Meaning that they yeah. were in his head, just yeah. like your friend. He had 127 things that he was anxious or worried about, and none of them happened. Yeah. It's the yeah. exact same. So basically, what I say, don't borrow trouble from the future. Because that's what anxiety really is. Anxiety is always when we're thinking ahead, right? It's a future-based feeling. Or depression, a lot of times, is more in the past. And that's why we, you know, through yoga or through mindfulness and meditation, you know, I, I suggest that we try to live in the present as much as we can. Because when you're in the present, number one, you're much more alive. Number two, you don't struggle from depression or anxiety. Your friend had 127 things that never happened, but he was in his own mind. It's almost as if they were real, right? Mm. Yeah. So being in the present doesn't stop the depression from the past or the anxiety for the future. That's a, that's a lovely tip. Thank you. That but it's not easy to stay in the present. Don't get me wrong. That's why I'm, I, I'm glad to hear you're doing yoga because that does bring you back into your body in the present. Yeah. And do, you know what, do you know what I find? <laughs> Excuse me. For the, it, but balancing. Balancing has been revelatory because suddenly I have to concentrate so hard on not falling over that I forget to think about the past or the future. <laughs> yes, yes. That, that's the whole point, though. 
Yeah. Can you do that consistently? You know, can you do yoga three or four or five times a week where you're uh, centered? Yeah. And if you can do that, your life will be really uh, happier. There's no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so look, before we finish, I wonder what our kind of strap line from our uh, podcast is that financial planning is really very simple. You just work out what you want from life and spend your money on that, which is a kind of slightly um, tongue in cheek thing to say, because of course, working out what you want for life isn't very easy at all. Do you have sure. any thoughts on our on that? I think when we struggle financially in in if we're really living paycheck to paycheck, basically, and trying to make ends meet, that does take away from our personal happiness. I think there's a, I think that's where the seventy thousand a year comes in, basically, because if you're if you're just making it enough, or you have credit card debt, or if you're not able to pay your bills, it's very difficult to be happy in the midst of that. Honestly, mm-hmm. there's no way that financial stress doesn't impact your overall sense of happiness. Yeah. So one of our five areas of financial well-being is to gain control of your daily finances. So that you you could almost then you seem to be suggesting that's like a precursor. That's the first thing to get sorted, and then you can start working on the other stuff. And of course, you know, I mean, I used to do when in my in my old days when I was a psychologist, I used to do a lot of premarital coaching, right? And we used to talk about all kinds of things. And one of them was, of course, you know, finances, because. Finances, along with sex, you know, t- or communication, typically have to be some of the biggest stressors in, in a in a relationship, especially if the couple is not in alignment. You know, and it, it's twofold. One is people always focus. Well, I need to make more money. Well, you know what? That's only half the story. The other half of the story is that you need to watch your expenses, just like a company. You know, I consulted with a with a with a company, and they were growing by leaps and bounds. And I and I coached their their CEO, and he was all revenue based. You know, made a fifty million this year. Next year, I want to make a hundred million. And he was all about making more and more and more and more. And and I asked him, I said, "Who's looking after where you're spending your money?" Because it seemed like the more they made, they were still like breaking even, basically. He goes, "Oh, nobody's doing that." And I'm like, what are you talking about? How can you run a company? <laughs> I'm like, how can you run a company? No, you're not looking at your expenses. Just because you made more money than last year, you're spending more money. You're back to square one. And that's like economics 101. I'm not an economics major, but I mean, seriously, if I make $10, and this is the definition I would say to you, if, if I make 10 and I spend 11, that's misery. Mm. If I make 10 and I spend nine, that equals happiness. Mm. Mm. right simple so so and also when we bring that back to, to financial well-being it's how you're spending the money as well on on things that will make you happier so experiences rather than buying stuff and and all yes. that kind of thing yes great point stuff never makes anybody happy it might make our life a little bit more convenient but really and i probably about 10 years ago i i told my family i don't want any presents for my birthday or whatever or christmas experiences Mm. togetherness you know so we have those memories create those memories that's really what it's about yeah yeah that's a fantastic place to stop i really really appreciate your time today uh it's been absolutely fascinating we'll make sure that we uh put your book out there on the show notes and, and i really appreciate your time today thank you thank you so much chris and uh keep doing the yoga man <laughs> Oh, I did enjoy that. That's another one of your great interviews, Chris. You're getting very good at this interview stuff, aren't you? you I love the questions that you ask, and you, you, get, you elicit really good answers from people as well. He was fascinating. 
Yeah, well, that's right. Can be, David. I, I'm finding myself drawn into these conversations. <laughs> I think because they're all so interesting. You can't help but go, but but well, it's me. It's it's Gonzo interviewing, isn't it? It's all about me. But I thought that his his stuff about personal brand, about you are what you say, is just absolutely so fascinating, and it makes me wonder. Well, obviously, you could hear in the interview what it made me wonder. It makes me wonder what is my personal brand. Now, I don't know if you guys feel like sharing this, or having a guess at this, but what would you say would be your personal brand? What sort of, you know, if you're the something guy, what guy would you be? Well, I, uh, let me come at that in a slightly, from a slightly different direction in my case, because I think the one thing that, that, that he touched on there was how actually uh, our family environment can actually influence the brand that we think we are. Now, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I do remember when I was a, a younger man, which believe it or not, I was once, <laughs> my dad saying to me once, he said, I don't know what it is about you, Dave, he said, but whenever, whenever your back's against the wall, you know, something always comes up for you. You are the luckiest person I know. And I believe that because it seemed to make sense because actually he was right. You know, I found that I was in this cycle of all of a sudden things perhaps weren't going so well in my life. And then, and then things happened. What I eventually realized is that actually it wasn't things happening because of luck. It was things happening because I made them happen. What I hadn't taken into account was the fact that it was my, I think, probably laziness, lack of attention to detail that had got me in the mess in the first place. Um, and I realized after a while, because you do as you get older and you learn things, that that was my own particular cycle. It was a cycle of, oh, things are going pretty well at the moment. Things are all right. Oh, I'll coast for a while. I'll take my eye off the ball. All of a sudden, oh, hang on a minute. I haven't got any money or this relationship isn't doing too well. And it was because I hadn't done anything. It hadn't carried on doing the things I needed to do to maintain those things. So it wasn't actually luck that made things work for me in, in a better way. It's the fact that I actually put the requisite amount of attention back onto them again and work hard to change things. And so I think that was the, the thing that chimed to me about, about what he had to say That's there. fascinating. It's a fascinating subject. I mean, the idea of how people refer to us uh, affecting our own behaviour and, and our view of ourselves is interesting. Titus Tomo, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> <laughs> mm, yes, that brand is sticking. <laughs> yes. I, do you know what's interesting about the Titus? Is I, it's just all about trying to find ways to reduce what I'm spending on things I don't, some things I don't particularly value, but I know are necessary. And also, to be fair, some of your tips are how to spend money on things that will make you happy. Exactly. I think this is a, an actual misconception is the idea that I don't spend money. <coughs> well. <laughs> actually, maybe trying to save money on certain areas so you can spend money on areas that yeah. you really value. And, and that often doesn't come across with this tight ass, Tomo. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I, I went on a, a bit of a, I've gone on a personal journey doing the financial well-being work that we've done over the last four or five years, is that before I was deeply entrenched in really struggling to spend money. You know, somebody had probably drilled down and has probably come down to childhood or something, I don't know. But I was tight, right? I was tight. And then it was just realizing that there's ways in which you can spend your money that give you a whole different boost to your well-being that actually are, my purse strings are far looser than they've ever been. But on the things that are really important to me, so that's the interesting one. I'm not tight on areas that I think will add value to mine and my family's life. And, and there's friend. a very interesting observation I will make for that. Based on lockdown, 
one of the things that that has always given me pleasure is eating drinking going to the theater going to the cinema, going out socializing enjoying myself and i've always found you know going to gigs i've always found well if i spend money on that that is that increases my financial well-being well obviously none of those things have been possible during lockdown so actually i've saved myself an awful lot of money but what i've also realized is it's possible for me to spend money on doing other things that increasingly make me feel good and probably not spending as much either and one of the things that i've been doing is actually giving a little bit more money to charity so if i find that people i know are doing some well it won't be a run or a walk but you know some some something they're doing to raise a bit of money for the nhs i'll go yeah i'll bung them a tenner i'll stick some money in for that and therefore that i'm finding a different way to to increase my financial well-being anyway interesting though this is Th- that's particularly important at the moment because places like Pelé Bron have had to close down because of COVID and that includes their fundraising. So actually giving to charity right now has never been more important. Just mm. coming back to the interview, I thought what he had to say about comparison was really, really interesting. Uh, and in particular, the way that w- when we make comparisons between ourselves and other people, it's rarely positive. We're usually doing it in a way which is which is putting ourselves down. And I thought that was a very interesting take on on our own happiness as well. There's, a, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. That that famous quote. We, we did um, we did a whole episode on on that particular that particular topic, didn't we? And I I will put in the show notes a, a, a link to it where we started talking about some of that comparison theory. And there's, there's one last thing that I want to, to just bring out as well, which is a thought that I've been having. And, and it comes back to what he was saying towards the end about um, now is the time. You know, what would you do if you had no limitations? What would you like to do? And it occurs to me that we have a once in a generation opportunity right now, maybe even, maybe even bigger than that, to rethink everything rethink our own lives, but also rethink economics, rethink politics. Where, you know, this COVID um, pandemic is unprecedented, well, well for 500 years, um, and I've been sat at home with thinking time. Well, let's use that thinking time. We now have this opportunity to reinvent who we are and what we do. And I think that this is an opportunity we shouldn't waste. It's a, literally a once-in-a-generational chance to rethink who we are. Loose well, pocketed Tomo. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that optimistic note, we'll draw things to a conclusion. So thanks very much. Uh, and we look forward to the next time when you join us for another one of our financial wellbeing podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs>